Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. Downloading to you from New York City, I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. Uh, for this episode, uh, which I'm very excited about, we have the founder and CEO of the brand Four Days, Christy Kaler. Christy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so you spent your early career growing businesses for major apparel manufacturers. I mean, The Gap and its affiliate Banana Republic. Um, you know, what were some of the things you saw in that environment that led you to perhaps pivot? I think when you're in a business that big, that's exactly at the center. It's mass, it's massive. Um, I, I was very fortunate to kind of be a little entrepreneur at Gap and start and grow some very exciting businesses. So on the one hand, I got to see really cross-functionally how the industry was run. It was a great educational kind of um, experience, but it also gave me a lot of leadership foundation. But then I also spent a lot of time in our supply chain. Um, I was living in Tokyo at the time, uh, running the Banana Republic business there. And it was then that I traveled to places, whether it was Vietnam, the Philippines, specifically China, um, and really got to see the footprint. And, and what I found kind of startling in those experiences, one specifically, I kind of land in Shanghai, drive two hours outside of the city and, and came upon this massive factory that had a fake post office and a fake restaurant. And I was like, wait, what, why is nobody there? And it was like, well, those exist so that we can be subsidized by the government, but it's not really a city. It's really just dormitories of humans producing things for Gap and Marks and Spencer. And I was like, wait, what? That exists. Like, it just wasn't something that was exposed at the time. And for me, it was then coupled with the fact that we were you know, selling so much at Markdown and always talking about like, let's buy into Markdown builds. And then so much was being returned. And I was like, oh, this is an equation that I think is, is going to falter at some point. And I also felt like as just a consumer and a customer, I wanted to know more. I wanted more connection. I wanted more transparency. And I felt like that that would be a draw ultimately. And if this is the picture, it wasn't going to be a, a nice one. So it really set me on this course of, of really thinking through the decisions that we make as an industry through the lens of of impact and footprint and it's powerful it's a powerful industry with a tremendous amount of of monetary value running through it and so why don't we use that power for good and for improvement yeah i mean that's a pretty orwellian experience which, <laughs> um i i i would love to say i've shared i actually traveled uh, in Beijing with Stephen Cole with the CFDA mm -hmm. uh, on intellectual property matters for fashion brands. Um, and we talked about trying to get outside of the city. And as you can imagine, it was, um, it was a pretty restrictive conversation as to where we could go and what mm -hmm. we could do. Um, but so you co-founded Maya, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, a pioneering eco-conscious brand for sure, uh, still exists. Um, what, what happened there that, um, that, that you either left or that, you know, you, you moved on to found four days? Yeah, Mayette, I mean, it was 
such a tremendous experience and so wonderful. And having co-founded that, I was coming off of an experience where I was running Red, Product Red for Gap. And um, it was in that kind of role that I got very passionate about the power of um, employment and supply chain. At Red, we were making t-shirts in China to help the cause of AIDS in Africa. And it was like, let's make t-shirts in Africa to help Africa. And I realized how novel of a concept that still was in fashion in general. And so when I had the opportunity to kind of dig in with Mayette, I was like, wow, the power of artisanship in less expected places in developing economies is, is can be incredibly beautiful and really start to shift that conversation in fashion. Because I think this was 2010, the idea that impact could also live at Barney's was like, wait, what are you talking about? No, it can't. Like you're going to be at, you know, the flea market or Whole Foods, if you're lucky, you know, and I was like, no, 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 we can do this. We can do this. And so in building that luxury brand and really sitting at the kind of top of fashion, I think we successfully changed the conversation and perception of what it could quote unquote look like. Um, but as I was doing that, I got involved with uh, Cradle to Cradle's Fashion Positive leadership team and started learning about circularity. And I think what I started to recognize in, in the Mayette experience is that while we were in luxury, luxury was not actually that dissimilar to the mass market. The, the business economics were exactly the same. Neiman's would order twice as much product as they needed, send half of it back. What was I going to do? Charge my artisans back? And I was like, we're still living in that sea of markdowns and returns and everything's still ending up in landfill. And as I got deeper into this concept of regeneration, I was like, and I also got to experience the communities that were suffering from pollution, that were suffering from like resale markets that nobody wanted, like massive piles of American t-shirts in a Kenyan market. And you're just like, well, oh my goodness. It was a systemic problem that I just became very passionate about shifting. And while Mayette is this really beautiful engine, I didn't think it was the vehicle for massive change. And so um, that, that was really the inspiration. I wanted to do something more comprehensive and also something more accessible. You know, I think, I think having been in the world of sustainability for a long time and seeing it emerge as a powerful customer appetite, it, it often is ridiculed for being inaccessible, too hard, too expensive, too complex. Um, and I was like, we have to fix that if we're going to make this mainstream. Well, that's a great point. I mean, it brings up a real social commentary on sustainability. And I mean, there, there's, this is such a rich area. You know, I'm, I'm focusing right now on eco elements, but obviously there's just the human impact element of these artisans, of these makers and the conditions in which they live. And, and how really at the bottom of the chain, they absorb all the bumps. Yep. Um, so God, there are so many directions to go here. <laughs> I, wanna keep, uh, I wanna keep it somewhat linear um, in that, it, I guess let's back up and for some of our listeners who may not understand the wholesale model and may not understand why a, a Neiman's or a Bergdorf's or a Walmart or a Target would overorder from a brand. Um, can you maybe just educate us a little bit on that dynamic um, and, and why it exists? Sure. I, I think the business economics are that, that we're taking a guess for the most part on inventory when we're ordering it. And there is no perfect crystal ball on how it's going to sell. 
And so what we do is we mark it up to such an extent that we know we can still make money if we get it wrong and have to mark it down. And so it builds this kind of strange over-purchasing of products because we've engineered it such that we know the long tail is still remotely profitable. And for businesses that traditionally and all are traditionally linear, it really is just about pushing inventory at a positive margin out the front door. Just get it on out. Don't want to see it again. Don't care. So I engineer the product to afford that inefficiency. Um, and that's how it's been done, you know, for forever. And it, it's, it's a common practice at all levels. It doesn't matter if you're selling a $10 t-shirt or a $120 t-shirt. It's the same equation. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> two, four days, which, which you founded, and it's an end-to-end -end sustainable business. Uh, it is for men and women in terms of the apparel offering. Um, I think you've, 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 you've alluded to what drove you to found it, but what are your plans for that business and how, I guess, specifically does it address this problem? Yeah, so we set out to create really the first fully circular business. Um, and it really started with a few data points around kind of customer behavior and the shift in our relationship to ownership coupled with this desire to see circularity become a profitable reality. And so touching into the access over ownership, like who wants to own things for forever? That's a really long time. And who has too much stuff? Pretty much everyone. So, and it's going back to that linear model, which is sell us more and more and more and more. And it piles up in our home and it goes into landfill. And to me, I was like, there's a new way to relate to customers, one that can actually take that product back and regenerate it. And if we do that, we could actually create a new relationship with the customer, but we could also start to satisfy that circularity kind of um, regeneration principle. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that, that led us to where we are. And I knew to build a fully circular ecosystem, we had to build it ourselves. You have to start with recyclable product, you have to engage the customer and incentivize them in this behavior, and you have to build reverse logistics and recycling to reincorporate that product back into new product. That's the perfect circularity. And so when I was like, the, the world needs this, the industry needs to move in this direction, what are the next steps? I was like, well, we have to build it. And so we decided to start with t-shirts, uh, sweats, kind of those common products, because I felt like those were the things that wear out. Nobody wants to really share a pit stain t-shirt. It's hard to resell. You're not going to rent it. <laughs> it just ends up in landfill. Um, and so if we could solve it for those categories, we could really expand from there. And so what we've been focused on is proving the behavior, proving the unit economics, proving the profitability. And what we're seeing is pretty tremendous. Um, and the plans from here is really to expand this behavior more broadly throughout the industry. How do we do that um, by, by building on what we've what we've created from a technology and infrastructure platform and do that in partnership with the industry. Um, you know, you started by saying like, we have so much stuff, like the world is awash with clothing. <laughs> when we were talking earlier, it is. Um, so how do we start replacing that product with circular products? How do we start getting them into this circular system in a bigger and bigger way? So that's, that's our goal is to be that facilitator. And so what are some of the challenges with traditionally produced fashion items? I, I, I know them and I know students at, at FIT and Parsons and other schools that have technology elements that are working on them. But again, for those maybe, you know, 
uninitiated, why, why is it difficult to say, take an item that has rivets and the zipper and a lot of threading, but why can't we just throw that into a bin and upcycle it? Right, yes. I mean, the material choices are the complex piece. And so uh, hardware is an obvious one. You can't mechanically shred a zipper. <laughs> and so that makes it difficult. So we have to think it'll, about it. It'll, it'll mess with the shredder. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to go so great. <laughs> so you have to disassemble. So how are we designing for disassembly? Well, guess what? We're, we haven't been because it was never an imperative. So you have to think of new construction techniques, new ways of stitching, new way of gluing. Um, you think about the material choices, like we have 70% of apparel contains polyester. Most of the time it's a blend. How do we recycle that? Do we have to disaggregate the poly from the other blends? Can we mechanically recycle it? What if it has over 5% stretch? Can't be mechanically recycled. So what do we do then? And so I think those kind of supply chain, like front end design and development choices have to be made with the end in mind. I always say like, start at the beginning with the end. Because if you don't, you'll get to the end and not have a solution. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the problem is we've never actually had to design for the end. We've just been designing for the present, um, which can great, create you know, a great, beautiful product for a little while. But ultimately, we have to think about the full life cycle. Yeah. Well, so how have you, and, and you, this may still be the goal, um, but clearly there are some products that you are finding are profitable and you know that when they go into the cycle, they're, they're gonna be able to, to return and they will be circular. Um, I will not name the brands because some of them <laughs> my firm represents, but there are brands that have traditionally been very, very sustainably minded, but their price point is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has been attributed to the fact that they take the pains to make sure not only from an environmental perspective, the impact is minimized, but also from a, a human rights and, and labor um, sense that, that there's as, as low impact and as fair wage as possible. How, how are you, you'll pardon the pun, threading that needle yeah. um, to, to, to be a for-profit business, um, but not be at that luxury price point? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's entirely possible in today's world, I think, um, will we ever be the cheapest option? No, because the people who are the cheapest option are decidedly cutting those corners. Mm -hmm. um, but our t-shirts are in the $20 range. We sell, you know, a $58 woven shirt. It's very accessible. Um, you choose your construction, you choose your material, but we're as transparent and fair in our employment practices as anybody else. Um, so I think in today's world, being mindful, being thoughtful, it's, it's entirely possible. Like, are we at the luxury level from a materials perspective or a design perspective or complexity? No, it's simple product, but it's, it's intentionally accessible. And, and how has that <clears throat> sort of elitist arrow that has been thrown at a lot of those brands that, hey, I would love to be green and I would love to, you know, know that I haven't I haven't, you know, been a, a party to, to worker oppression, but I can't afford a $450 t-shirt. Um, has that been a, a difficult thing to slough off for you as a brand? And, and sort of how do you respond to it 
when it is applied to other brands, which you know, or, or I assume, you know, you, you feel do intend to do good. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think again, we're moving into a place where more, more supply chain partners have invested in sustainability, more investment is going into recycling technology. There's more availability than there ever has been before. So the idea that you can only make a very expensive sustainable product, I think it's gonna sound a bit harsh, is a bit lazy. Mm -hmm. You just have to try harder, work harder. Is it going to be perfect? No, can you switch a billion dollar business to be 100% sustainable overnight? No, you have to make step changes, but it's, it's entirely possible to do that. I think for us, we've actually been met from a customer perspective with so much insight and education, meaning the customer is so much more educated than they ever have been before. They're asking the hard questions. And I really enjoy that where they're like, no, tell us more. Well, exactly. How does that happen? Well, what about this? Or what about elastic or what, you know, and it's, it's great because I'm like, they're going to hold us ultimately accountable and will be the forcing mechanism for the other the other folks who are lagging behind a little bit being like, it's not possible. It's too expensive. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> at some point you're going to have to catch up. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, look, the consumer has, has never been more enabled to engage yep. with brand, which is, which is great because ultimately yep. every brand cares. I mean, that's what you're in the business to serve your, yep. your consumers. Um, but let's let's just on on four days um, and its swap program mm -hmm. because we haven't talked about it specifically. Um, for those that haven't engaged with it or don't know what sort of turning in used items, whether gently loved or or thrashed, mm -hmm. um, to get a new item or a credit for a new item, how does that work and um, how is it working? Yes. So the idea being that everything in your closet has future value, doesn't matter the length of ownership, the condition that it comes back to us in, everything that you buy through four days has intentionally been selected as circular, meaning it can be recycled, upcycled into new materials, new fabrics. So we don't care. We want you to live in and really use your clothing and we really just are rewarding you for participating in circularity for recycling. So everything that you buy has a guaranteed credit that comes with it. Those products live in your closet. That credit balance lives in your closet. And when you go to buy something new, you can choose to swap out something old and say, oh, that dingy white t-shirt that you know eh, nobody wants to see anymore. Great, swap. And that credit is applied to your new purchase. All the products that you're buying come back. Um, all the products that you're purchasing are brand new. All the products that come back to us are sorted and graded and shredded and re regenerated into fiber and fabric. So it really is about incentivizing and making it much easier to get rid of your old worn out clothes, the ones that you're done loving. Yeah. How do you do that with items that are not four days? Yeah, what we realized as we started to create this relationship with the customer is one, everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Like, I don't have to worry about my child spitting up on my white t-shirt. Great. <laughs> I'm never going to buy a plain new white t-shirt anywhere else again. This is awesome. Um, but what we realized is we didn't want to wait to initiate that kind of behavior until all, our, all of our products were out. And so we started um, what we call our take back program which is a way for anybody to clean out any old clothing in their closet. Everything comes back to us again for sorting and grading. And then we get it to its best next use, um, which sometimes is resale on like 
domestic resale markets, there's a very small portion that's applicable to resale. Most of the products very worn out. The majority of it goes into a downcycling queue, which means it goes into insulation and shoddy rags, you know, household, pro like those types of uses. That's really just a symptom of the fact that the product wasn't made to be circular in the first place. So, you know, that will improve over time. But for now, we're just happy to keep it out of landfill. As we know, 85% of textiles go to landfill, including donations, including resale. Like it all inevitably ends up there. So yeah, let's let's just let's just shock some people with some facts, <clears throat> which yours may be more more timely than mine. Um, you know, what what are some of those shocking facts in terms of the wastefulness of the fashion industry relative to every other industry other than oil and gas? Um, and how much we, and let's just say in the United States in particular, contribute sort of per capita to what we buy and what ends up in the planet. Yeah, I mean, there's a crazy statistic, which is 60% of clothing is owned for less than a year. I always think about that, which is like, oh, that, that is like the fast turn, right? 60%, 85% of textiles end up in landfill. Um, that's per year, 80 pounds per person in the US every year. It's shocking. Well, I, I, yeah. I don't think most people would fess up to having purchased 80 pounds of, of product. Well, what's strange is like, I think what ends up happening is that we, it, we, we filter through it and then we donate it and we offload it and, and we just forget about it. And so it's, it's really one of those things where like, we're not tracing it all the way to the end and, and we're just like, ah, it's not my problem anymore. And that 80 pounds per person also includes, you know, post-industrial post waste and all sorts of other waste. It's not that you're taking 80 pounds of clothing to the trash every year, but it's just what the industry produces mm -hmm. in, in landfill waste annually. I mean, I think we're one of the world's largest user, users of pesticides. <laughs> it's like, you can go deep into it, but I think the just quantity of clothing and the quantity of waste is, is pretty illustrative. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and staggering. So, mm -hmm. You know, four days presents presents a, an option to this, but how do you think the rest of the industry, which is a huge swath of the industry, both from a luxury price point, right, into kind of that ready to wear to 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 to, to mass, how are they going to actually pivot into this? You know, they have been for decades focused on a for-profit motive which is a cycle of selling us the newest new, creating seasons within seasons, you know, resort, yeah. resort two. What are you gonna- Resort two. Yeah, like, really? Free fall one. <laughs> right. And In June. <laughs> yeah, if you don't have the new, you are out of fashion. And that, that is what the marketing dollars and the, you know, that, that is the traditional model. And that has created the wastefulness. But very difficult for, a fortune 500 company that sells apparel to, to just completely just turn the aircraft carrier on this. And, you know, they are for-profit businesses and they have shareholders to answer to. Like, how do you envision the culling if it's going to be a culling? Mm. You know, what's going to, what are we going to be looking at 10 years from now in terms of the apparel sector? I think a few things. I mean, I think 
that it, it, it's not going to happen overnight, but I do think the business model innovation, um, and it could be just because that's the world that I'm in, but I think business model innovation is really the necessity here, which is how are we engaging the customer in a new behavior that still drives profit opportunity, that still drives bottom line, that still drives margin, that starts to correct this pattern. And so we have to find new ways of making money or new ways of retaining customers or new ways of reselling product because that's, that's going to reduce the overall footprint, but we also have to change the way we design to, to incorporate into that. And whether it's for disassembly, versatility, refurbishment, recycling, like the secondhand market will always play a role. The, the circular market will always play a role. And then we start to build, build products for those that are intended for those. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we are not as customers can have fun and be fashionable and see new seasons. It's just how that's flowing should change um, because it's not the utilization of clothes that's causing the problem. It's the before and after, you know? Yeah, I don't wear eight outfits a day. <laughs> you know, but even if you did, it wouldn't matter, right? It's like, it's how they're made and what happens after and what happens in between. So it's like, I think in a perfect world, we get to have everything we want without creating this footprint and we get to kind of enjoy. And if you do that with very conscious kind of regeneration principles, refurbishment and reuse principles, you can, you can probably get a lot closer than we are today. Yeah. Well, gosh, so much. But I, but I don't want to sort of leave this area without, you know, as a for-profit company, mm -hmm. um, four days seems to tick a lot of boxes that I know are relevant to B Corp certification. Is that something that you are thinking about or thought about on formation, which, um, you know, obviously maintains your for-profit status, adds a ton of disclosure obligation on you, which is, which is costly, but based on the way you're describing the business practices, you know, would be, would be applicable and, and would give you that certification. Yeah, we actually have at various times kind of danced around um, going through the process. It's actually quite a cumbersome process and not to say that it's a cumbersome process because we're not doing the things already. It's just very time consuming and takes a long time. So there's a huge queue right now for B Corp certification. Um, so it's definitely something that's kind of on our radar. I think we still maintain the same level of transparency and, and reporting and we do an LCA analysis on all of our, our manufacturing. We buy and, and purchasing, we buy carbon offsets for all of our transportation, both in our supply chain and in our consumer pipeline. And so I think um, to your point, we're doing all of the things. And if, if the certification is available, um, it's something we're definitely keeping in mind, but just haven't yet. Yeah, I, I, look, I can speak from experience with clients who are undertaking the process or have engaged in it. It's very costly because it is inherently administrative it involves lawyers um, to, to provide that disclosure and it's ongoing. So it yeah. is very much like, you know, the benefits of becoming a public company are you have access to the stock market to, to fund yourself. Here, you know, the only benefit is just the certification that, mm. you know, not only have you put your money where your mouth is, but um, you've got somebody independent certifying it. Um, so it's mainly, you know, been justified as, as kind of a, a marketing element. Yeah. Um, so I get it. I get it. Yeah. 
No, uh, it, it, it's a good thing. I believe in, in third-party verification certification. Like we work with third-party, um, as I mentioned, like LCA analysis companies and things like that. Cause I think it's important that we're a small company still. So figure yeah, it out. Yeah. No, yeah. The costs are high. And you know, one hopes that it becomes, because I think it has been, because it's got, you know, it B Corp itself is a nonprofit yeah. um, with no real skin in the game other than to just continue to properly certify. But there are so many industry associations that get formed around wool or cotton production. Mm -hmm. And you don't know which, you know, I mean, you can put 20 badges at the bottom of your website. Yeah. You know, are they, do they serve the cotton industry and the wool industry? Do they serve, you know, what, what, what are they really? Yeah. Um, and this is one of the difficulties with a global industry like fashion that, you know, you, you can get a certification kind of anywhere, but there's no global authority necessarily certifying the certifiers. Well, I think it's a complex issue. I've, I've been in a lot of working groups talking about this, where it's like in the food industry, we have organic, like there are certain verticals where it's, it's an easier stamp of approval. And in fashion, there's so many elements, like all the way to water treatment, dye processing through wetlands. And it's not, it's not a black and white, like what does sustainability mean? Yeah, and, and I agree. I think nomenclature, you know, language is important. It needs mm -hmm. to be agreed. You know, sustainability means 18 different things. A right? lot of things to a lot of people. Exactly. 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 Yeah. There was a ton of greenwashing going on and, um, yeah. you know, that just creates consumer confusion. But yeah. to your earlier point, you know, the, those consumers that do care, I mean, if you're willing to do your diligence as a consumer, you, you, you can get more to the bottom of things than you could 20 years ago, for sure. Um, and so that's, that's certainly a good thing. So, so four days doesn't, at least to my knowledge, have a product that sort of would, would scale with, you know, sort of a, a Birkin bag or a Dior product. I mean, you don't put yourself at that. You're, you're, you're trying to create more of a mass appeal. Yes. Yes. Do you feel though, that at that high level, even if the Birkin bag itself is not produced in a way that lends itself to being recycled. We all know no one is no one is chucking out a Birkin bag, right? Mm -hmm. To have it shredded up. So, so what do you think of that? And do you think yes? But who's sort of determining who those luxury brands are? Because I know a lot of brands that think they're at a certain scale, mm -hmm. and that people will collect their items and never throw them away. I think it's super interesting because I do think inherently like a high value good that should be cherished over generations is in theory, a very sustainable item, like the longevity, the duration of ownership, the utilization, like all of those things play into, if you wanted to create an equation, that's, you're going to be on the right side of that equation. And I think therefore it should actually require less volume. I think that's where the resale market specifically in luxury is incredibly interesting because it gives that item, even if you're bored with it, a life and a life and a life and a life, and there's still value to be had by the person selling it. Um, but I do think you, you pointed it out before, like even in the luxury space, and this is what I saw being in it is this like frequency of collection, frequency of drops. Like it was actually operating like a mass market when I was there. And so that's forcing the creative engine. That's forcing a cost structure. That's actually probably stripping out value of products. You don't get as much time to be thoughtful and create real value because it's, 
it's a slower process. Like not everybody creates a Birkin bag eight times a year. <laughs> like, you know, that <laughs> there's heritage well, there to that, you know, right. There are yeah. the knockoffs, which do wind up in landfills and do wind, yeah, you know, and, and the economy there yeah. is, you know, you, I've never heard anyone put, put hard numbers on it, but I've been to a lot of places mm -hmm. where, you can walk into what really looks almost like you're walking into a Gucci store on Fifth Avenue, but it happens to be at the Grand Bazaar in Turkey, yeah. you know, in Istanbul. And you can get a knockoff that, that would shock you with a serial number sewn into it, but it's not the same yeah. thing. And it's not going to be handed down necessarily to, to children because it's not made yeah. the same way. Well, it's, or nor is it cherished the same way when you know it's not real. Yeah, I mean, I think the counterfeiting issue, I, I've always thought like, I don't know, is there a way for the brand who creates it to control all the market share somehow? Um, because I think what people are buying into is the brand and then buying into the deal. And I always say like, who doesn't like a deal? I don't know anyone who doesn't like a deal, <laughs> like, which is obviously in conflict with, with a, an aspirational brand. So I don't know that that market dynamic is a tricky one because I similarly say even in inexpensive markets, when we're talking about like the price of sustainability, not being a bargain basement price, like if, as long as there is a $4 bikini, somebody's going to buy it. And the $4 bikini isn't necessarily sustainably made, <laughs> I would argue. So by the time it was made and produced and shipped halfway, you know, so I don't know with free markets, I don't know if we're ever going to fix that, but. Well, um, let's, let's, you know, the last two, three years, obviously with the pandemic, it's been, um, it's sped up perhaps what was a dire state for the retail industry. And we've seen bankruptcies, you know, from, from Barney's and from other, you know, I mean, they have happened. They, um, they sped up during the pandemic, but, you know, retail is, is at a challenging point. Mm. Is, that, is that an opportunity for brands like you, for the fashion industry writ large, to, in a sense, recreate itself? Because, you know, the system is a little bit broken. I mean, absolutely. You know, we've, we've talked about that for years, like what's the role of retail and we've had the rise of e-com and yet there's a role that real life shopping plays, I think, in, in most people's lives in some capacity. And I think that's an important role. I mean, coming from the background that I've had, retail was everything like, you know, but we had these big ballroom sized stores that were hugely capital intensive to maintain and housed all of this inventory that was stuck at these locations. And so I think we're smart enough now to know that's not the answer. Um, but how do we create kind of a in-person interaction in a way that isn't so cumbersome from a capital expense and inventory perspective? And I don't know that it's entirely showrooming, but it's like, is it smaller footprint stores with higher turnover? Like, I just think there's there are de definitely ways, and I know we talk about experiential retail and, and definitely ways, but it, it plays a role. I think, I, I think it's actually the economics of the business as a whole that are difficult, which goes back to our earlier conversation around like buying all this stuff, hope I can sell it on Markdown, like right. the cash flow component, the margin component, the overhead component, like At that's where we, we have to that think. middleman out of there. Well, you, you do. Decisions for your brand to overproduce. Yeah. To, uh, to cover their own risk. I, I think that's right. And like, that's irresponsible, but there's no accountability for it. And so 
um, you know, ultimately it's, it's, it's too much stuff. We have to get more thoughtful and more specific and then have, have a way to re-engage customers over time and, and build relationships again. Like that used to be a thing. Yeah. Kind of lost sight of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of industry relationships, you are a member of the CFTA. Yeah. Um, you sat on the Lexus uh, Fashion Initiative Advisory Board. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of the CFDA's role with respect to the sustainability issues presented by fashion and, and, and what kind of job are they doing? I'm actually really proud of the CFDA in this respect. Um, maybe having been one of the early folks who like <laughs> took the phone call and was like one of the few people who understood what was going on. There's just a sense of like support and nurturing along the way. But I think again, having been in these conversations super early, um, I've watched them, you know, really advocate for this being something that they stand behind as an organization, really supporting designers, both who started from a sustainability perspective and who didn't in learning more and figuring it out. Like that was the, the really cool part of the, the Lexus program was that there were, there were brands who were launched as sustainable brands who were participating in the brands who were just traditional brands trying to do better and creating that conversation and a sense of um, resource it, like they're bringing more resources to the table, more conversation to the table doing as much as they can, I think, to kind of coach and nurture and mentor. I'm, I'm happy that I continue to be a part of it because, you know, they're the voice in the room. And so if that can be a consistent and present voice, it will help shift yeah. systems. Yeah. Well, so how about during this time and, and many employees um, and contractors are, are not going into offices and, and not viewing professional dress the way in which maybe you and I coming up, you know, and <laughs> after, after our school, you know, I mean, you know, in my case, you wore a suit and a tie and you went into the office every day and that's, that's, you know, you, you put your jacket on to walk down the hall and um, it, how has that impacted, you know, four days business and how do you think it's impacting the fashion industry writ large? I mean, I'm just happy we weren't a suit maker during COVID. <laughs> I look at, at my friends who are in, in more, you know, sophisticated lines of apparel and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, guys, that's got to be really hard. Um, I think, I, I mean, I do, you know, we had the early onset of COVID, which was like sweatpants all day, every day. And I think at the end, end, end of the day, that doesn't make anybody feel super chic <laughs> for forever. So I think we'll find a, a balance. I mean, I think I personally think some of that formality will be stripped out um, in our everyday lives. And yet I still believe that fashion plays a part in culture and that there's always been that role fashion has played and, and we'll see it emerge in its next iteration. I do think I mean, we're seeing, a, from my perspective, we're seeing a really interesting mix of people ready to have fun again and play, but also with like a sense of, of authenticity and there's like an earnest element to people's lives these days. And, and sometimes I think fashion historically could have been thought as like frivolous or superficial or not thoughtful. And so I'm interested to see how those two kind of somewhat opposing forces end up cohabitating. That yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge believer in 
you know, fashion as an element of just the national, the, the, the zeitgeist at any particular mm -hmm. time. And I think we've gone through a fairly extended period, at least in this country of, of me first um, in a lot of ways. Uh, and um, sometimes taking some of the ceremony out of presenting yourself is a reflection a little bit of, of I don't want to say disrespect to who you're in front of, but at least as a practitioner of law, I mean, I, I think my clients want to see me still looking like a lawyer, not yeah. like somebody who's just coming up <laughs> off the beach, Yeah. Um, despite how comfortable that look may be. Uh, and I think, you know, that it's not the only profession, profession that that applies to. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. I, my, my, like, I had a, my grandmother passed away two years ago at 97 and she was a dancer on Broadway in the forties and you've never met a better put together woman. And it didn't matter the, the, the occasion and it didn't have to be fussy, but you know, it always had, it always had style. And I think that's, that's the component where it's thoughtful and it's, it's style and it's got, it's got a vibe. Well, how would you describe four days design aesthetic? Is it, is it your personal style? Uh, is it, is, is it a reflection of the current zeitgeist? It's definitely, I mean, we started with like clean, well-designed basics and it's evolved um, as, as the landscape has evolved and as our customer base has kind of come into focus. And so I would say naturally we probably started in a, in a slightly more personal way and that it was a little more elevated or a little more like fashion oriented. Um, but our customers are really young. They're 18 to 28. You know, they're, they're living the Gen Z life. They're actually talking about kind of opposing forces. They're like high consumers, but with high consciousness. And those two things are kind of <laughs> in conflict, right? And so, but they're fun and they're, they're vibrant and they're colorful and they're energetic and they're authentic. And they're about themselves. They're about inclusion. They're about fluidity. You know, they're, they're definitely um, just a, a really, I think, exciting group to speak to. So we've, we've been evolving the style to kind of meet them where they are, um, which you'll see more even in our holiday collections, which is much more about like patchwork and vibrant colors and upcycled materials. And we do a creator series every month where we work with somebody in the upcycling community or an artist and just keep it really kind of fresh and um, never too serious. Like, I mean, our brand has always been about optimism and connectedness and this idea of freedom. And, you know, so we, we try to maintain that spirit, but really bring it front and center because it's, it's youth. Well, so let's, let's, let me, let me continue on you personally and, and your design aesthetic or your, you know, I mean, who were some of your style inspirations, whether personal or, or public figures? Yeah, I mean, as I said, my grandmother was one of my biggest style style kind of figures that I can remember because it was so consistent. And I used to just get dressed with her and, um, you know, help her kind of formulate an outfit here and there. Um, I'm trying to think of like true style icons, you know, throughout throughout the years, like I think there have been amazing brand moments, like whether it was Lanvin and, and what was happening when Alba was there was Celine and, you know, first BB time and you're just like, wow, this feels like a, a moment where people are coalescing around a concept and a vision. And that's always been 
for me, but just a high level of respect and admiration for those kind of a sense of classic and a sense of beauty and a sense of quality um, and a sense of timelessness, I would say, plays into what I admire. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I you know, those, those style icons often can come from the design ranks. I mean, they're obviously the most uh, the most astute people in terms of understanding the way a garment fits. And as a member of, of Goodwill's board of directors and knowing that Goodwill along with Salvation Army and others, you know, engage in uh, the sale of secondhand goods. So that was one of the reasons I joined the board, but I realized the huge task it is on a nonprofit like Salvation Army or Goodwill to go through the entire process of offering something at retail and then making sure that if it's never sold, that it's dealt with responsibly and disposed of responsibly. Um, and Goodwill, just in case you didn't know, is a bunch of chapters. So yeah. my board is New York, New Jersey, which is the largest chapter, but there are chapters all over. And so each of them treat that sort of end-to-end -end game potentially differently. Um, so, you know, how do you think we're doing, uh, you know, and, and, and others and, you know, how can, um, how can the for-profit sector potentially help? Yeah, I, th I mean, I can't, Im I can't imagine, and I hear it firsthand, the complexity and the expense that goes into being somewhat of a receptacle for everybody's old stuff. And so I think that's the piece that's difficult, which is like, of course, everybody wants to feel good about where their clothes go, but you're really dumping a bunch of trash on Goodwill, who's a nonprofit. <laughs> and it's like, hold on, <laughs> we need a better situation for filtering product to these important stores in a way that's more efficient. And then also takes, you know, takes into consideration the end of life on the stuff that can't be sold. So I think, I think there's definitely a, a partnership to be had in, in that and a little bit of education on the consumer side, better tools for the, for the customer to get rid of their old product, it's kind of like what we're doing with Take Back, which is like, that's great. Like, we'll get the right things to Goodwill. Like, I'd love to funnel resellable product to Goodwill so you guys don't have to sort through it for some benefit. But like, it's, um, I think it's going to be in collaboration with some more sophisticated tools for the customers, some, some more efficient sorting and grading, like kind of playing the value chain out across the entire lifestyle, knowing what the, the funnel looks like. Um, because I don't think it's on you guys to be that funnel. It's, it's, I don't know, that's my take on it, <laughs> but no, I appreciate that. It's, you know, but, but when you're the one left holding the bag, in some cases, literally, right? Literally, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, you do want to be as responsible about that as you possibly can. I mean, so I've, I've been to, you know, our bailing system and, you know, we, we the, the, the end life for a lot of those garments and, and accessories is, is to be bailed. Um, yep. And then, you know, often sent back overseas, which there's some irony in that, that, you know, most yeah. of the things might have been made in Pakistan or India or Vietnam, and they're going back there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the part that I find so challenging because it's it's being shipped to places that can't handle it uh, for a in a lot of ways, at least in my experience. And I think there's there's a negative impact on communities and and economics and waste streams in doing that, but if we don't have a better monetization tool, like to your point, like 
what's the alternative? So that's, we have to create alternatives. Yeah. Well, so back to four days of the brand. Obviously, we've we've been through a, a long cycle of collaborations being a very common thing in fashion. Um, do you guys do them? And do you feel potentially, you know, you've got to be careful with whom you collaborate, given your position on the industry and many other fashion brands on the industry. So how do you how do you deal with that? We do, we've done some collaborations just fairly opportunistically. Like we did a great product collaboration with a beauty brand called Verst. Um, we've done some things with Package Free Shop. Uh, we're working on a few others with some kind of more celebrity names. So we're always open to them. We haven't done any big brand collaborations, but really keen to do so because what I'd love to do is be able to create a circular product selection at somewhere unexpected. Um, and so it doesn't even mean that that brand has to be perfect today. Like, let's go help you. And we'll do something that illustrates the story as possible. And that could be way up market. That could be way down market. Like I'm kind of open to all of it because I think our role to play in all of this conversation is education, lead by example, facilitation. Like let's, let's drive this forward as a way of, of operating. So yeah. Super keen. Yeah. No, that that, that, that yeah. makes perfect sense. And and you touched on it. I mean, the role of influencers, which often gets a little conflated with, with collaborations because many influencers themselves have become brands of sorts. But how, how does Four Days feel about that? How do you use influencers if you do? And um, you yeah, know. We, we've really built our influencer network entirely organically. Um, and we do that through gifting and telling our story and really standing by our values. And so I think our, our community of influencers who support us, support us very enthusiastically, which means it's very organic and authentic, which I appreciate, you know, I mean, it's obviously an important tool in your marketing mix and we really haven't leaned into kind of any paid relationships. So, um, I'm sure they're fruitful. We just haven't done that yet. We haven't needed to, but I think there's similar to the customer landscape, there's a rising tide and kind of consciousness around sustainability. And if we can help tell that story alongside somebody who cares about that, we, we always jump at the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Christy, we are out of time. That is okay. a wrap. Thank you Great. so much for joining us and um, any, any last words, any nonprofits that you work with that you want to give a shout out to or, or current programs that four days have before we close? Yeah. I mean, watch out for our, our monthly programs. Our creator series usually come with some sort of nonprofit association. Um, we're also launching something for holiday alongside one of our key supply chain partners, which I can't talk about yet, but I will <laughs> in holiday. Um, so I think uh, get the give back element of our brand is implicit in our business model, but also something we live by every day. So great. Well, yeah. thanks again. And thank you listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye now. You've been listening to the laws of style with Douglas hand. For more information, go to our website, at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.